Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn to me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. Matthew, chapter 22. I'm going to read from verses 41 to 46. Matthew 22, 41 to 46. I made fun of the elders for being out of practice, and God, in his kindness, let me step in it. I'd never invited Ed to pray for the juice to give thanks on our behalf, and it would have been an encouragement to us, and I forgot, and Ed will serve us again sometime in the future, but pride cometh before a fall, so that's all right. Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 to 46, as we slowly make our way through this gospel. Here's what scripture says. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. <clears throat> how do you respond when someone complains and says to you, that's not fair? How do you respond? If you're a parent, you probably hear that at least two or three times a week. Um, sometimes, I suppose, as a teacher, you would hear it in your classroom. Coaches, I imagine, in the field hear it, and, you know, referees certainly do. That's not fair. Maybe sometimes you have uh, heard it as, a, uh, as an, a supervisor from one of your employees or across the uh, a, a cafeteria table from one of your coworkers. That's not fair. And maybe even sometimes you've heard, heard it or a version of it coming out of your mouth when you pray. That's not fair. I can think of uh, some responses that you might have. Three of them come to mind. On the one hand, you might try to fix it. Sometimes the complaint is reasonable and, and reflects reality. Nobody wants to run an unjust home or an unjust classroom or an unjust shop. So maybe you, I don't know, rearrange the schedule or you redistribute the pieces of the pie that you have cut up to hand out or you redo the work assignments. You, you fix it. Here's the complaint. I'll, I'll try and fix it. Uh, alternatively, you could explain why the situation is not as unfair as people think you that, that it is. Uh, uh, you know, we have all within us this bent toward our own interests, um, a bent toward thinking that we're working harder than everybody else, that we're actually bearing the brunt of the burden, that, that no one else has it as hard as we do. We all have that bent to think that way, and sometimes it's helpful for someone to give us a dose of reality. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was chaperoning a band um, competition, a band trip, and uh, we returned to the school late at night. And the rule is that the trailers that with all the band equipment have to be emptied and all the equipment has to be put away before anybody can go home. That's the rule. All the students know it. That's the way it is. And I was outside um, getting, putting the chaperone stuff, collecting it and starting to get it uh, uh, put away. And two girls were walking across the darkened parking lot to their cars. And I knew the trailers weren't empty. In fact, Standing next to me was another chaperone, another volunteer. She is the parent of the marching unit booster, so she knows everything. And uh, she said to me, 
uh, those girls are leaving. They're not supposed to. And I said, would you like me to yell at them? And she said, absolutely. So I did. I said, girls, you're not supposed to be leaving yet. The trailer's not empty. And one of them turned, and they stopped and turned and looked at us across the parking lot and said, one of them said, I have to work at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. I did not realize that she was the sole exception to the rule because of her rigorous work schedule. It was a Saturday night. It was late. I was grouchy. I'm not as good a Christian as I would like. I said, I have to work at 7.30 tomorrow morning. <laughs> they didn't stop. They, uh, th th that made them talk to one another for a little bit, but then they kept going and walked right into their car and drove right home. Don't be so hard on them. Some of you are gasping, which is making me feel good about myself, but, but don't feel, don't, I mean, don't. Don't be too hard on them. If you ask me later, I will tell you about all the rules that don't really apply to me either. Like that speed limit thing. I mean, whoever thought of that? I'm the exception. Don't you know? I'm the exception. That's not fair. Here's a third response. This is sharper, uh, but maybe a wise response. This is what um, uh, Bruce Sauter, I think, says often. I've heard him say this. That's not fair. You're right. It's not fair. Life's not fair. And the sooner you figure that out, the better off you'll be. Which one of those three responses um, do you prefer? I, I, all three at various times have their uses. Um, I want to suggest to you that the passage of Scripture that we just read in the context that it appears in the Gospel of Matthew actually seems to favor the third response. You're right. Life's not fair. But it also adds one line that makes a very important difference. Life's not fair. That's true. At least not yet. At least not yet. At least it's not fair yet. And getting that not yet provides crucial ballast as you cross the seas of life in this broken world. We're going to walk through this passage. I've already given you the headings for today. One of them's already shown up on the screen. First, we're going to talk about the fact that life's not fair. And I want to think about this passage in its context in Matthew 22. Then we're going to think more specifically about the content of this passage. And we're going to think about that second heading, not yet. That will come in a little bit, not yet. My goal is I want to show you that this is one of the most important passages in the Gospel of Matthew, not only for what it says about Jesus, but in this context, it also works like glasses that help us see life with a little bit more clarity. Let's start. Life's not fair. You've heard me say this, the context of this passage. Matthew 22 is a, uh, a series of questions and answers, four of them. This is the fourth one between Jesus and the religious leaders in Jerusalem. They are asking him three, they ask him three questions that are meant to trick him, uh, fool him, make him look corrupt, make him look uh, uh, foolish, uh, get him in trouble with the Roman authorities or get him in trouble with the crowds that were following him. They're trying to take Jesus down with their questions. Sean O'Donnell says that this is like a baseball game and that uh, they're throwing their best pitches at Jesus. What we find actually in the passage is that Jesus takes all of those pitches and hits them out of the park. Uh, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, don't win this battle of wits. 
My biology teacher in high school used to have a sign on her desk that said, I refuse to have a battle of wits with an unarmed person. It's probably a good sign for most high schoolers, right? And uh, 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 Jesus, he wins. He wins over and over again here. He handles every single one of their questions. And then he asks them a question that they can't even answer. They don't even take a shot at it. You remember, we've talked about some of the implications of this conflict. We've talked about the fact that this conflict, these conversations, show us these conversations, remind us that Jesus was not tricked or outsmarted onto the cross. I'm sure, I'm sure that there were religious leaders in Jerusalem, members of the Sanhedrin or some, uh, Sadducees or Pharisees, who went to bed on Friday night, that Friday night, thinking that they were pretty clever. I'm sure they were very satisfied with what they had done to Jesus and how they had gotten him. They had, I mean, after all, come up with the idea to bribe Judas. And, and they'd been able to convince Pilate to send Jesus to the cross and been able to convince the crowd to call for him to be crucified. And they'd even been clever enough, they're so clever, they'd been clever enough to put a seal on the tomb so that if anybody tried to steal the body, they wouldn't be able to get away with it. They're so smart, they finally got Jesus. They outwitted him. I'm sure some of them went to bed Friday night with that sense of confident relief. They were wrong though. Jesus did not go to the cross because he was outsmarted. He runs circles around them. We also thought about this passage and and Jesus and his ability to answer objections that people have to the faith. I'm grateful for men and women in the church of Jesus Christ who are very skilled at answering questions about the Bible. Skeptical questions, good questions, hard questions about what the Bible teaches. We do walk by faith and not by sight, and sometimes that involves deep, careful thinking. And I'm grateful for for men and women who are skilled in answering those questions. Do you know the best question answerer of all time? The Lord Jesus. We also thought about this in, in terms of Jesus' mastery over all things, that he's the master of scoffers. He's the master of marriage. He's the master of the resurrection. He's the master of the Bible. He knows everything that these uh, men are asking him about. He, he's so central. He's central because of his mastery, because of his, who he is, but he, he demonstrates uh, who he is by his mastery. Look at what uh, Jesus said in John eight nineteen about how central he is. Jesus said, you do not know me or my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Jesus is so central. He's central to knowing who God is. You can't know God without knowing Jesus. And Jesus is brilliant. He's worthy of your confident trust. So there's this battle of wits, and Jesus emerges indisputably as a champion. Verse 46 emphasizes that no one could say a word in reply. He asked the question, and nobody, nobody answered. Nobody's raising their hand, and they're all looking away. Don't call on me. Don't call on me. I don't know. No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. I mean, he wins. He wins. And you know what happens? They still crucified him. What should they have done? They should have, in response, this is not fair. 
This is not fair. In response to Jesus answering all their questions perfectly, they should have bowed down to him and acknowledged his superiority. That is not what they did. They went out to crucify him. And that's not fair. We hear occasionally uh, on the news uh, stories of men or women who are released from prison, people who have been wrongfully imprisoned. Here's a recent one. In 1976, Ronnie Long was arrested for breaking into the home of a 54-year-old woman named Sarah Bost who lived in Concord, North Carolina. He was arrested uh, and charged with sexual assault and burglary. Uh, 44 years later, in 2020, he was released from prison. He spent 44 years in prison for this crime. The state of North Carolina confessed to the judge that they no longer had the evidence to prosecute the case, and a federal appeals court had ruled that Long had been a victim of extreme and continuous police misconduct. I hate stories like that. It's terrible. 44 years lost of this man's life. It's a grave injustice. And yet we're reading in the Gospel of Matthew about the greatest act of injustice that has ever occurred. The Lord Jesus crucified. Jesus isn't corrupt. He's not stupid. He's not flawed. It's not fair that they executed him. It's not right that they executed him. And the New Testament tells us repeatedly to expect this same sort of treatment in the world we live in as followers of Jesus. It's what happened to the Apostle Paul. It's what happened to Stephen, the first martyr. It accords with the Council of Peter. We read this uh, from 1 Peter 2 a couple weeks ago. It's worth looking at again. Look at 1 Peter 2.18. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Now remember that Peter is talking to slaves. Slaves have no access to courts. They have no lawyers. They have no constitution. They have no rights. They're at the absolute bottom of society. It is almost inevitable that they would be treated, that they would be mistreated. But even if you have all of those things, even if you have courts and lawyers and constitutions and rights, even if you have all of those things, it is no guarantee that you will be treated justly or fairly. And the challenge from Peter is for us to follow the example of Jesus in this mistreatment. Look again at verse 22 of 1 Peter 2. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. No retaliation, no threats, no complaining. Following Jesus is not going to get easier in this world. 
Uh, what will you do in response to the increasing pressure? I think you should use every legal means you have to push back against it. Uh, I, th- there is certainly nothing wrong with exercising your rights, your constitutional rights as a citizen. You should do that. But when that fails, if that fails, huh, when that fails, what will you do? Don't complain. Don't retaliate. Don't threaten. Jesus actually does, setting us an example. He does what he has already commanded his people to do. Look at Matthew 5, 11, and 12. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. It makes Jesus sound a little sadistic, doesn't it? Rejoice, be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. (coughs) (coughs) Lucky you. You're in great company. Or Matthew 5, 43 to 47. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Anybody can be nice to people who are nice to them. It's not hard. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? There's nothing supernatural in the life of someone who is nice to someone who's nice to them. But what do Jesus' people do? We don't argue. We don't threaten. We don't complain. We don't retaliate. We, in fact, oddly enough, we rejoice. We love. We bless. We pray. Now, this is terrible advice. You should recognize how, how odd this is. It's, it's masochistic. Only though if you count out the rest of the paragraph that we need to talk about here. The context reminds us and tells us life is not fair. It's not fair. But the content of this paragraph is a shout from the Gospel of Matthew that says, Not yet. Not yet. Let's think about this. The question that Jesus asks is not merely a bit of trivia here in this passage. It nestles right into the overall message of Matthew and claims of Matthew, claims he makes over you as his readers. Jesus actually asks three questions. It's his turn at the plate, and he throws three balls to them as they're up at bat. And question number one, it's pretty easy. It's a single. Everybody knows the answer question is, verse 42, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Now, um, some of you might be new around here, newer around here. Let me tell you what the word Messiah means in the Bible. The Messiah is a reference in the Bible to the promised deliverer. God promised that he would send a rescuer all the way back in the book of Genesis. He started making these promises about the deliverer, the rescuer that he's going to send. Uh, It's going to be someone who's going to defend God's people and and execute judgment on the earth and fix everything that's broken. And Jesus is talking about this promised deliverer. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Back in 2 Samuel, uh, one of the prophets had told us that this uh, Messiah would be a descendant, not a, a first generation son, but a descendant of David. That David, David and Goliath, the great king, David. Whose son is Messiah? David's son. All right, 
Everybody knows that. Question two, verse 43. How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls the Messiah Lord? And you have to understand something about this culture in which Jesus lived. Um, in this culture, it is impossible for the Son to ever have a higher title or to ever have more glory than the Father. There is always, from generation to generation, decreasing glory. It's impossible for a son to have more glory than a father. Uh, you will never be more awesome than your father. Now, if your father's in the room, you should look at him right now so he can give you one of these. Okay? Right? You will never be more awesome. I would have thought I would have gotten at least one amen off of that. You'll never be more awesome than your father. All right? Nothing. All right. Always, if, if the Messiah is David's descendant, how is it possible for David to call him Lord? Because the king bows to no one. Hmm. Have you uh, watched any episodes of The Crown, Netflix's series about Queen Elizabeth II? Some of you have. Um, they go to great detail in The Crown to talk about Queen Elizabeth and who bows to who and what's the right protocol for the queen. And when the queen is, uh, when she becomes queen, Elizabeth becomes queen, everybody bows to her. Her grandmother, her mother, her sister, her husband now for the rest of his life has to walk five feet behind her. Um, even her uncle who has been king uh, but abdicated must bow to her. The queen bows to no one. How, how can it possibly be that David would call his son Lord? It doesn't make any sense, except that's what he does. He does it in Psalm 110, which is what Jesus quotes in verse 44. Now, um, it's interesting um, that uh, what Jesus says about the Psalms here for just a minute, verse 43, he says it's written by David, and then it's David speaking by the Spirit. So the Psalms are by David in the Spirit. Who wrote Psalm 110? David or the Holy Spirit? Yes, is the answer to that question. Jesus affirming the dual authorship of the Hebrew Scriptures. In Psalm 110, David calls the Messiah Lord. Verse 44, the Lord said to my Lord. Now, who, who are the Lords that we're talking about? Who's, who's David speaking about? Um, the Hebrew is a little, makes it a little bit easier maybe to think about because the English just says, the Lord said to my Lord. Um, the, the Hebrew says, Yahweh said to my Adonai. I didn't put the word my in, it should be there. Yahweh said to my Adonai. And Yahweh is the Hebrew word, I am. It's the name God uses to introduce himself to Moses. It is God's covenant name. This is clearly God the creator, the covenant maker, uh, the one who uh, uh, is God in the Hebrew scriptures. Yahweh said to, who's Adonai? Adonai is a word that means Lord, boss, master. Who's David's Adonai? Well, they all knew, they all believed that David here was speaking about the Messiah. So how can the Messiah be David's son and David's Lord. How is that possible? That's the question. Question three he asks in verse 45. Now, Jesus is not denying here that the Messiah is David's son. 
He's, what he is doing is he's affirming that the Messiah must be more than just David's son. Yes, David's son, but even more than David's son. He's a person, the Messiah is a person that God will invite to sit at his right hand. Who has the right to do that? Who, who would dare sit in God's presence? And who would dare sit at the seat of power right to the right of God? Who could do that? And who, who could it be? That God will say, sit here until I put your enemies under your feet. Till God serves you by putting your enemies under your feet. That's astounding. Now, having your enemies under your feet is uh, an Old Testament image for absolute victory. So uh, it, it, one of the places it's used, not metaphorically, but literally, is in Joshua 10, 24. Joshua speaks to some of the elders of Israel, and he says, come over here. And put your feet on the necks of these kings. It's in the Hebrew. It's not in the English. The Hebrew says, and make them say, uncle. (laughs) Come here and put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came forward and placed their feet on their necks. Joshua said to them, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Be strong and courageous. This is what the Lord will do to all the enemies you are going to fight. It's an image of total victory. Who, who is this? David's son. Not just David's son, though. And actually, Psalm 110, if we continue in it, it tells us more. It tells us that this one is, this Messiah is going to be a priest, too. The Lord has sworn and will not change, verse 4, his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Messiah is going to be a king priest. Verse 5 tells us about this role reversal. Think about this. How astounding is it that God would say to someone that the God who made the world and everything in it would say, here, you sit at my right hand. Now look at verse 5 says, The Lord to the Messiah, saying to the Messiah, the Lord is at your right hand. They switched places. The Lord is at your right hand, and he will crush uh, the kings on the day of his wrath. And then verse 6, speaking about the Messiah again, he will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. Messiah is judge. Who can this be? Who can this be? He's He's David's son. He has to be more. He has to be even more, though, than just David's son. This is not Bible trivia that Jesus is, is playing with these religious leaders. He's actually making a claim on their lives that is a challenge to them and a comfort to Jesus' own people. It's a challenge to the religious leaders. They've seen the miracles. They've heard the teaching from Jesus. They have listened as he answered all of their questions. What are they going to do with him? What are they going to do with him? What should they do with him? They should bend the knee and honor and recognition. You, you, we thought we could trick you, but clearly we cannot. You are great. And instead, they plot to crucify him. He's making this claim over them that they will not respond to. Every human being on planet Earth is going to have to deal with Jesus. Every person in this room will have to deal with Jesus. Answer to this claim of his authority. And some of you might be hesitant because, you know, you have some significant questions. There's questions that we talked about a a while ago. Good questions about the trustworthiness of the Bible or some of the things that it teaches. Um, And those questions are making you hesitate. But, you you know, the scripture says to us, 
that ultimately that our questions, our intellectual questions, are, is not the final problem. The heart of the problem, the Bible says, it's the same one that's here, is about Jesus' lordship, his authority, his right to tell you what to do and what to believe. And every person on earth will have to answer to the Lord Jesus. I said it's a challenge. It's also a comfort. It's a comfort to us. And that comfort is wrapped up in that little word, until. Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Not all of the enemies are yet under Jesus' feet. There's a lot of things that happen in this world that are not fair and not right and not whole. And this passage says, that's not fair. We say, that's not fair. And this passage says, not yet. Not yet. The New Testament makes multiple references to this. Um, Hebrews 2, 5 to 9, picks up in this image a little bit in an interesting way. Look what, what Hebrews 2 says. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified. That's a great way to make a reference. <laughs> to. Uh, he's going to quote from Psalm 8, and the author of Hebrews says... There is a place where someone has testified. It'd be a lot easier if he would say, Psalm 8 says, but that's not what he does. He says, there is a place where someone has testified. What is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. Interesting, Psalm 8 had made that reference to human beings, everything being under the feet of human beings. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. This is the reality. Is, is, is your life ordered the way you want? Is it perfect the way you want? Just do all of your problems immediately say, uncle, when you stretch out your feet? We do not see everything subject to them. Oh, no. But, verse 9, we do see Jesus who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. There is a day that is coming, a day that is coming when Jesus will visibly, clearly, indisputably reign over all things. He will reign over all things and then he will hand everything over to his father. And like 1 Corinthians 15 says, God will be all in all, visibly, indisputably, demonstrably, confessed by all, all in all. This is not incidental to Matthew in his gospel. In fact, in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, which we're going to get to eventually, Matthew is going to go into great detail about that day that the Lord Jesus returns to reign. We're going to, we're going to actually get to their Lord willing during December. So in, in a church, we'll be singing about Christ's first coming and studying about Christ's second coming. It'll be great, great overlap there. We'll finally be able to sing Joy to the World legitimately. It'll be great. It'll be great. Remember that day. Remember that day when you finish reading the Gospel of Matthew because against this Lord, all hell is going to break loose. Against this Lord, he's going to be betrayed. He's going to be tried. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be crucified. And he's going to be buried. And he will not look very much like a Lord 
when he's lying in the tomb and the stone is across the entrance. He's going to, Hebrews 2 says, taste death for everyone. He's going to die because he's going to rescue his people from the wrath to come. The wrath that he's going to bring. He's going to bring that wrath as judge. But at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, he's going to die to save his people from that wrath. He's going to suffer the wrath so that you don't have to. So that on the day of glory when he comes, you will not be under his feet but at his side. Remember that as you read Matthew because all hell is going to break loose against Jesus. And at times, remember that, at times you're going to feel that it has broken out against you too. Because terrible things are going to happen to you. And it won't be fair. But Jesus is going to make it right. It's not fair. Not yet. I discovered in recent years a new hobby that I enjoy. In the winter time, especially, I have taken up the hobby of putting together puzzles. Which you know what that means? I'm old. I'm old. Can knitting be far behind? I don't know. So I was looking at, uh, I, was, uh, I saw an advertisement for a set of three puzzles. I really like the pictures. Um, and uh, unfortunately, the puzzles have a thousand pieces. That's, oh, that's too much. But I ordered these puzzles and came, and I was on vacation. So I started putting one of them together. And Luke saw me do it, and he had interest in doing it. So Luke actually did most of the puzzle. He did 60 or 70% of this puzzle, putting it together. And when he was finished, he showed it to me with great excitement, this 1,000-piece puzzle. We discovered when it was all put together that they only sent us 995 pieces. He put the puzzle together, and there were five missing pieces. We looked everywhere for those five missing pieces. Nobody had stolen the pieces. The dog hadn't eaten the pieces. We had no... They did not come. So I, I called the company, emailed the company, and I said, hey, we're missing these pieces. And they said, uh, we're really sorry about that. We can't send you the five missing pieces, but we'll send you a replacement puzzle. <laughs> I don't need 1,995 pieces. Uh, does that frustrate you, that story? Does that bother you? If you were in that situation, would that bother you? Some of you, I can see you're kind of shaking in rage here a little bit. You're having a, you're having a moment. You can't, you're not sure what to do because how can you have only 995 pieces of a 1,000-piece puzzle? It's not fair. You're always going to have pieces missing in your life, brothers and sisters. Always. You're always going to have unanswered questions you're always in this life going to have and see unjust suffering. You're going to have unfulfilled desires. And you will say, that's not fair. And the Lord Jesus says, at least not yet. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your great kindness to us and, and that we can read the words of the Lord Jesus the Messiah, sitting at your right hand. Lord, we come before you and we confess that we are sometimes um, those who, who complain and, and get woefully discouraged 
by the missing pieces in our own lives. Uh, Lord, this, this world is, is broken and, and things don't work the way they're supposed to and it, it discourages us. It causes us to doubt you. It, it um, well, we're in despair at times. We thank you for this assurance that there is coming a day when all of the enemies will be under the feet of Jesus. He who conquered death and sin and the grave will one day return and everything will be fixed and, and we'll be astounded at the level of righteousness and the level of justice that prevails in that great day. Help us, Lord, to, to have confidence in that and, and to trust you through that. And Lord, we do pray that you would come soon, that this day of glory that, that we'll have the privilege of sharing in, that it would that hasten that day, Lord, for our sake and for your glory. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.